Hi, I'm Shreya Bakliwal and this is Women Who Build Podcast. I'm sure most of you love to wear handloom kurtas, but how many of you really know how much of what you pay goes to the artisans who make your clothes? Don't you think it is great for us consumers to be aware of where our money is going? This is exactly how Tamarind Chutney is different from all the other brands out there. It is transparent. And today I have Tanvi Beek Chandani, co-founder of Tamarind Chutney with me. Tamarind Chutney is a social enterprise that aims to improve artisan livelihoods and promotes textile waste in India. Previously, Tanvi worked at Central Square Foundation, where she was my colleague, and Education Philanthropy Fund, where she was chief of staff to the managing directors. She holds a BA in economics and South Asian studies from Columbia University and an MBA from Stanford. She enjoys reading, hiking and doting on her dogs. Now without further delay, I have Tanvi for you. Hey Tanvi, I think I'm catching up with you after so so long. Uh but uh, thank you for joining me. Hi Shreya, thank you for having me. It's great to be here and I'm excited to chat. So actually let's start from the beginning. What really led you to start Tamarind Chutney? So I think my journey is very or I will say that it's really easy to look back and say okay this is my journey I knew exactly what I was doing and these are the choices in my life that brought me to social entrepreneurship when the reality is far from it um grew up in Delhi went to the US for college and studied economics and south asian studies and sometime in college I sort of had this realization that I wanted to be in the development sector and I didn't want to do a typical corporate job so that was actually my anchor and purpose more than anything else for a very long time and then I just sort of explored and discovered various things I interned at Fab India also during college and I think that's where my interest for the craft sector originated or at least developed but i ended up not joining fab india and i ended up working in the education sector after college and i think in this post college phase i was focusing a lot more rather than the big picture okay what gives me purpose and what do i want to do big picture i was focusing more on okay what is it that i enjoy on a day to day basis and i think that's where i realized that okay i like entrepreneurial jobs i like being on the ground i like a little bit of the hustle i like creating things and that's when i thought okay at some point i want to unite the two i want to work for something in the social sector that i feel very very strongly and passionately about and i want to do it as an entrepreneur because that is a combination of big picture satisfaction big picture impact and fun and fulfillment on a daily basis so that's what i thought but having said that i never knew when to start an enterprise this was a long term goal that okay you know i'm going to experiment a little bit find my calling quote on quote and then and then one day i'll be an entrepreneur and i think when i went to business school which was a couple of years ago i was not actually planning to be an entrepreneur i was exploring all kinds of things i had worked in the education sector i wanted to work in other sectors in the social space i was even considering working outside india for a year or two even though i was very sure i wanted to come back to india so you know entrepreneurship was just one of many options on the table and i thought it was more of a medium term goal and i 
got advice from a lot of mentors of mine when I sought their counsel. I was like, what should I do for the summer? And they were like, why are you getting so confused? You keep saying you want to be an entrepreneur. The summer between your first and second year in business school is perfect risk-free time to do something of your own because worst case, you can just shut shop and decide to find a job later and you won't have that cushion or safety net if you do it six months out of business school or, you know, after quitting your job or something. So I was like, hey, that makes sense. Um, and I was toying with a few ideas at the back of my head. I think I always had various ideas. I just never knew what to do with them and when was the right time to start. And one of the ideas was working to improve artisan livelihoods, working in the craft space. I contacted a friend of mine, a very good friend from high school. We'd been talking about this idea very casually for a long time. The timing worked for her as well. She had just quit her previous job. She was looking for something different. And we said, hey, let's do this over the summer. And it was supposed to be a seven-week project. And then we said, we'll, we'll see. And the seven weeks never ended. And that's sort of how I stumbled into entrepreneurship. I knew it was something that I wanted to do, but I never knew when. Glad that you were able to identify the right time to start out. Uh, now you mentioned that, uh, you know, your mentors have really played a big, big role in kind of um, you starting up finally. Um, so tell me, how is it that one really chooses a good mentor? So I think I was really lucky to find mentors. I think, well, one of the mentors, honestly, has been my dad. My dad is an entrepreneur and I think seeing him through the years has, well, I would say it's at least kept entrepreneurship real for me. I never glamorized it as, hey, this, you know, all about the high life and raising money and spending money. Like I knew that it was a lot of struggle. So um, I think coming to like what a mentor should be, a mentor should keep it real for you. So, you know, uh, a mentor should not be afraid to be direct with you, be blunt with you and say, okay, this is how it is. And I think the second thing I would say is the mentor should really believe in you. So one of the other mentors who really pushed me to uh, entrepreneurship or suggested that I should do it was uh, Ashi Dhawan, who founded Central Square Foundation, which is where I both of us previously worked, yeah. and um, also Ashoka University. So I went to him while I was at business school and I said, I'm really confused. What do I do? And he was just like, you enjoy entrepreneurship, just go start something. And I think that belief in um, in me really gave me confidence that okay here are two people that I really admire and respect and they you know they believe in me and of course I've given these two examples as people who sort of helped me make the jump but I've had um, you know mentors who all along the way who sort of been not just at the 3000 foot level that hey go and be an entrepreneur but have helped me in strategic and operational decisions as well and so for instance one example of that is my um, mentor at Stanford. Her name is Naomi. She was at the Center for Social Innovation. So I just went to her for coaching and we got along really well. She liked the idea. She gave me really good feedback and she was willing to see, seek more time. I mean, basically give me more time. And I think that's sort of for me, this sort of great uh, sign or combination where someone is willing to invest time in you and someone is willing to invest effort in you. Uh, their seniority level doesn't matter as much. Obviously, if you get an, someone who's an industry expert, industry leader, they'll open a lot of doors, but you have to be very judicious with how you use their time. So I think uh, when people go and look for mentors, it doesn't necessarily have to be the most senior person. I, I think it's just about what 
value they can add to you and how um how much time you can spend with them as well so tell me you mentioned that uh, your co-founder is your best friend so tell me how is it that one really identifies a co-founder i i got very lucky my co-founder is my best friend from high school so i didn't have to go through the quote unquote co-founder search that a lot of founders have to do looking for people almost like recruiting them um but having said that the uh, slippery there is you know doing business with friends is a slippery slope right if yeah. the business doesn't work you might have ruined the relationship and that is of course a risk we've taken um having said that i think one thing that works really well for us is we have complementary skill sets so i have the business and impact background and um my co-founder charanya has the textile and design background so we both want to do different things i think one thing you hear very much in business school for instance is you know you have two mbas both want to be ceo and one wants to be coo or you have to non technical people and then you know you have to find a technical co-founder which who is really the person that the vcs want in your team before they fund you and so we didn't have to have that struggle because our our skill sets are totally complementary and that way we can divide responsibilities really easily so that's uh, from i would say tactical uh, perspective but i think from a working relationship perspective what's really important to look for in a co-founder is just mutual trust and respect uh given that charanya and i have complementary skill sets there are so so many things where one person is clearly better than the other and i would say for instance in in the vc world or in the fundraising world maybe a certain type of skill set is valued more like the management skill set or the technical like the technological skill set but that doesn't mean that the other skill set is not um valuable in fact in tamarind chutney i mean without design and and making the clothes the company would not exist mm-hmm. so uh i think it's just really important to to um to communicate and, and 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 let the other person know that you know both of you really respect each other and your skills whatever you bring to the table is really appreciated by the other and on a day to day basis this just means open communication so charanya and i have you know standing check-ins of course on work but we also every couple of weeks to a non task related check in which is just sort of hey how are things going how are you feeling is there any feedback that we need to share with each other is there anything that we did that got on the other's nerves is there any conflict that's remained unresolved and i think that is um really helpful now let's do a deep dive into tamarind chutney tell me what does tamarind chutney really do sure so tamarind chutney is a social enterprise that aims to improve artisan livelihoods in india and also aims to reduce textile waste in india and we run a brand uh, a direct to consumer fashion brand where we work directly with artisans small to medium sized artisans that usually don't get market access through the big brands we work directly with artisans we um source fabric from them we get that fabric stitched uh, into apparel and then sell it to you know millennial consumers in india through our online platforms we also um i talked about how one of our aims is to reduce textile waste so i want to also mention that while a lot of our fabric is sourced from artisans if there's any plain fabric that's not hand woven or not printed that we want to source we use 100% surplus fabric so fabric that 
would have gone to the landfill because it was extra from some other production, but it's perfectly usable. So we use that for our production. So I think we have sort of a dual aim is to increase artisan earnings and pay our carigars fair wages and sort of ensure that they get dignity for their work and also to reduce uh, textile waste. And tell me how many carigars do you have and how do you source these carigars? We started last year when in between my first and second year with around seven to eight artisans and we had a unit of around nine tailors so around 15 15 to 20. Uh, currently we are working with around 45 artisans and tailors combined so we've added 15 to 20 more in the last few months we were looking to add many more before the lockdown hit so but but we decided to rather than add more, just sort of ensure that we were able to provide for our current artisans. And we have relief efforts for artisans that are not associated with us that are separate. Um, And to your question on how we source um, or where we get the contacts of artisans. So certain artisans um, we connect with directly if they come to exhibitions. Um, in in Delhi Heart and Dastakar and so on and so forth, but that is the that is the minority. Those are artisans that are already, I would say, maybe a little more developed and a little more resourceful. For all the other artisans, we either go through grassroots nonprofits and um, get their contact from nonprofits or the government. And we're currently in uh, talks with the government to access uh, the artisan database of variety of states. Some states even have it in like public. So if you go on the Gujarat Crafts Ministry website, there is um, just, you know, pages and pages of just all the artisan names and phone numbers and a picture of, you know, like their product maybe. And um, some of those are accurate, some of those are not, but it's just a great place to start. Since you're a fashion brand, uh, Karigars obviously have a huge role to play in your operations. Um, so tell me, what does a Karigar relationship look like? We treat our artisans and our Karigars like stakeholders or employees in the business. So of course, you know, it's a, in some sense, it's, um, I don't want to say it's an equal relationship because obviously there's one buyer and, and a seller. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say it's a very respectful relationship. So while they know that we are an organization with a social mission, um, we don't go in by saying, oh, we're here to fix things for you. We're here to help you. It's more like, hey, we love your stuff. We really like what you're doing. We want more people to see it. And I think there is an appreciation for um, the way we work with the artisans. I think whether it's, you know, co-designing with them often, whether it's, prompt payments which by the way is a much bigger problem than you would think especially Mm. in this lockdown situation or whether it's just more of you know treating them like you would treat family in the sense of whether it's understanding about their family their circumstances their situation so I think it's a um, very positive relationship and beyond the monetary benefit that we provide just by giving fair wages not bargaining uh, ensuring that we're increasing their income we are we are trying to provide more social value mm-hmm. um currently those sort of inter- initiatives and interventions are are not systematized it's more like hey okay you want some help in setting up your instagram page let's do that for you or do you want to set up a digital wallet we can talk to you we can help you but we want to also systematize that so that if our artisans need other support that's non-monetary to build their business 
um, we can provide that. Yeah, and now just jumping on to fast fashion. Um, so very recently I was back home and I noticed how my cousin does not repeat her clothes for months. And, you know, she goes to college and she she's always like, what's up? What's new? I will only wear that. Um, so in that case, how is it that you really determine what the consumer wants? And how do you leverage the skills of your carriers to produce the output that the consumer wants? On the trends piece, I will say that we are not a very heavily trend-driven brand the way some of these fast fashion companies are. We're not looking at the latest fad and saying, okay, every month we have to find a fad and, uh, you know, produce something that's only maybe going to be relevant for a few weeks or a few months. We're definitely not that. We, um, I think, believe more in trans-seasonal dressing. So, you know, if you buy something today, Hopefully, you will want to look at it again in the next two or three years and, and like it. And, and more than that, and, and you still want to wear it over the years. You know, it's not going to be like, hey, what was I thinking when I bought that? Uh, so, we are not honestly very trend-driven. That being said, we're not just making a basic white t-shirt. We are making designs. And I, I think it's a combination of getting data from our customers, uh, which sort of, again, has been coming in on an organic basis and we're trying our best to just sort of um, analyze that uh, whether it's like hey do you have more colors in this or you know we try to engage our community we have very i would say still very small customer base but very loyal and very engaged so whether it's through instagram surveys or newsletters where we ask people what you like um we get a lot of you know suggestions and we um we use those and some maybe wider a little bit of wider market research just to see what's happening but we're not you know we're not like just gonna whatever's in the market we're just not going to use that it's a combination of what we think um might vibe with our brand and our customers and yeah i think that's that's the piece on on the on the trends i will say again that we're not um you know, design is also about showing consumers something new. So, for instance, um, I, who, and I'm not the designer, I just had this idea that, hey, you know, we've been talking about making t like doing something that's a little more uh, casual. So, let's do block prints on T-shirts. Hmm. Uh, people don't do that very often. And, like, you probably won't find that in any trend, you know, analysis. Yeah. But we were like, hey, let's just put a few out there. And they were, like, really widely popular. You know, they're out of stock right now. Yeah. And we keep getting messages from people uh, and request PG stock, PG stock. So that was just, you know, an experiment that, you know, an idea that just came out of somewhere and we experimented on it. So I think we're quite systematic in our experimentation that we produce, a, make a product in a small batch, especially if it's new or not seen in the market, and then we increase the production. But we don't necessarily go into like, hey, in fashion, these colors are in and we're going to uh, align with that. Now, on the sourcing and co-designing from artisans, I think there also it's an iterative process. So typically, a, a, an artisan who doesn't know us is not going to want to make something totally new for us from scratch unless we order a huge quantity because there's no relationship and um, it's a lot more effort. So we start maybe by buying something from what they already have or from what they've already produced before so they can just recreate that. And if we're happy with the quality, if we sort of, um, you know, are happy with the relationship, the timeliness uh, and everything else, then we will, you know, go and talk to the artisan and, 
be like, okay, we have this idea. What do you think about it? They have the technical expertise because they are the ones who are doing the weaving and the dyeing. So they will say, hey, on this fabric, this color may not stick. So then, you know, that's when we sort of co-create together and say, okay, you know, this is a product that might work. Um, now, since your brand is a sustainable fashion brand, I'm really inquisitive to know what is it that really drives the consumer to buy your product? Um, I specifically ask this because, you know, right after COVID, um, we read that uh, there is a lot of, uh, you know, consumer behavior that shows that uh, they really believe, the consumers really believe in sustainability when it comes to digitally native brands. So I want to know if you've heard anything from consumers. I think could segment our consumers into two types, if I just want to be very, very crude about this. The first set of consumers are people who buy into our brand values and brand philosophy. They like the fact that we work directly with artisans. They like the fact that we are sustainable, that we use surplus fabric for production, that we have zero plastic in our packaging, that we are constantly sort of like learning more about sustainability ourselves and sharing it with our uh, online audience. They like the fact that we are women-run and identify as feminist even as a brand in terms of the causes we support and what we speak out for. And and they like the fact that we're transparent. I think that's one thing that really differentiates Tamron Chipney from a lot of other brands. Many, many brands work with uh, with hand looms, work with uh, craft fabric. Many Some brands even work directly with artisans, but they don't necessarily tell you about the artisan. You mm. probably cannot log on to their website and find out which is the artisan that made this fabric. If I am buying a Patiala Salwar for 1300 rupees, how much of it is for the fabric printing? How much of it goes to the tailoring? How much of it is overhead? So we have all that information online. We have all that price breakdown online. That keeps us accountable to be ethical and our consumers like that. So that is one segment of consumers that like us for our brand values and for our philosophy. Mm -hmm. And then, I, and of course, they like our products. But maybe, you know, the driving force is not the product. Uh, and then there's a second set of consumers for whom the driving force is the product. They really like the design, the fit, um, the patterns. And then it's also a bonus that we are sustainable. We try to be as transparent as possible. We are an ethical brand. And I would say that our first set, first few customers have largely been from the first category, people who found us online, sort of sought us out. And those are the consumers that even in this very small stage for us are buying repeat. They're coming back every month, every six weeks, asking for more products, um, buying masks, buying whatever work from home apparel we have. So that's really encouraging. We want to find more of those um, customers. But we know that, um, I would say, the mass market in India is not from the segment that is driven by brand values and maybe they would prioritize us or they would pick us because we have a great product and sustainability is just an add-on and we of course want to target them as well and for those for those people it would be the designs it would be our product like our variety of product it could be the colors it could be the fit that brings them to Tamron Chutney and over you know multiple purchases through engaging with our product we would want them to care more about sustainability we would want them to care more about craft mm -hmm. but we are cognizant that they may or may not and i think for now that's fine we will 
create a product that stands on its own feet. We're not going to create a substandard product and expect people to compromise on their preferences just because of values. Now that we've spoken so much about your customers, tell me how is it that you found your first customer and how do you retain your customers? So your first consumer is probably like your family and friends. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think beyond that, a first consumer, a first stranger consumer has mm. to believe in you, right? Mm. Has to sort of see something in you or your product that says, hey, I'm going to take a chance on this. Right. Um, it obviously varies for the type of business. It's a lot easier to take a chance on a hundred rupee product than it is on a thousand rupee product, which is maybe our average. It's a lot easier to take a chance on a thousand rupee product versus a 50,000 rupee product. Yeah. So I think while ours is not the most fast moving, um, consumer good it's still i think uh, not that like it's not that challenging to acquire customers it, you know in the sense that you spend money on marketing and you hope you get customers but but i would say for the first for the first few customers um i think we have to believe in your story especially for a values driven brand um so our first few customers or customers who now have become our top customers but just found us from somewhere um you know have just they like the fact that we're women driven, like a female founded brand. They like the fact that when, you know, you look at Tamron Chutney page on Instagram or on the website, you feel like you're getting to know the, the people behind the brand um, mm. and they like our values. So yeah. I think you have to stand for something, mm. uh, especially in apparel. Um, while online retail is growing a lot, I think it's still one of the categories where people think a lot before buying because of fit issues. So people are not just going to say, hey, I'm going to buy that dress uh, because there'll be th you know, a thousand questions. What about the fabric? What does it actually look like? The photo may not look the same. Yeah. So um, it's about building trust and making them believe that this is worth taking a bit of a risk. So we did it with our story. Uh, we did it, we're doing it with the usual stuff in the sense of, you know, free returns, putting consumer, customer reviews and so on and so forth. So, you know, uh, these are all um, old tricks in the book. But I think one thing that we've learned um, is that people like feeling like they're talking to other people and not to a robot behind the screen. Yeah. So, um, and we're still figuring out how to scale this. Uh, because humans, uh, um, you know, like customer service is just expensive. But yeah. I think when when it's Charanya and me or our interns behind uh, the Instagram or on on the live chat on on Wix, we get much, uh, you know, on our, our platform, we get much much more uh, engagement. So I think we're trying to humanize our brand as much as possible. Of course, bring in automations and technology wherever we can for efficiency for back end. Uh, order management, production management. But I think um, customer service is something that has to have a human touch. And we are trying to figure out the balance between, you know, using AI versus having people that really make your customer feel heard. Now really talking about the branding strategy. Uh, whenever I go to TC's Facebook page or your Instagram stories, I see you and Charanya modeling for the brand. So tell me what's up with the uh, tamarind chutney there. I, I think 
a little bit of that is just Charanya and my personalities. We spoke about what we wanted our brand vibe and aesthetic to be. And if I had to take examples of existing brands, hmm. um, I would say it's like if Fab India and Chumbak had a baby or something like that. Yeah. I know like every brand is changing. Um, and 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 that even that can't, doesn't encapsulate Amrit Chutney because obviously we want to be... Um, we have our own voice, but I think we came in with that idea that we want to be craft, but we also want to be edgy and unique um, yeah. and and funny uh, and humorous and um, and 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 I would say if I had to add to another brand, so it was Fab India and Chumbak and Happily Unmarried also, which is um, used to be a gifting brand and now is a men's um, personal care brand, but their copy and their sort of uh, marketing is just leaves you with a smile yeah. so I think we knew we wanted that we wanted to be edgy we wanted to be craft driven and we wanted also to be standing for something so uh, a lot of our copy also has social causes that that you know as a brand uh, we believe that it's necessary to speak about have you ever considered selling in the US um, and I want to know what does the strategy look like there and what are some points that uh, a clothing brand can keep in mind while they are trying to sell in the US or any other foreign market for that matter? I think many people have told us, hey, why don't you just produce um, uh, in India and then sell abroad? Mm. Because the margins are going to be much higher. People will be willing to pay more. The local market here is still also very strong. And um, if you see your conventional foreign supply chain, you don't like if we were tamarind chutney selling we probably would not sell to directly to a customer we would sell to a buyer a wholesaler who would then distribute it somewhere somewhere or the other and that is a very exploitative supply chain so it you know even if the margins are higher for the end retailer they are not necessarily high for the artisan so there's nothing we can distribute back so i think that's a model that we want to avoid. Selling direct to the U.S. Um, customer, I think, is just something that has challenges because neither Charanya nor I know the U.S. customer, the U.S. market as well. Um, craft products inherently are not suitable to U.S. lifestyle just for the very you know, very basic reason that they will shrink in the dryer, um, you know, so just from a wash care perspective, it's, it's difficult to promote these. So you craft apparel is hard, um, unless it's very high value silk items or homeware that's not washed all the time. And we just felt like we would prefer to focus on India right now. The US, we could target the US market directly later. Uh, but I think we wanted uh, to, to prioritize one thing right now and do it well completely agree um i remember at anme i was so excited about selling in the us uh, but you know the team uh, together decided that it would make more sense to kind of perfect the products within india before we try to ship it out to the us or any other country for that matter and i do also agree that supply chain has a major role to play in terms of uh, the costs that you incur now i want to know a little bit about your funding strategy um i know that you guys are bootstrapped um, so really want to know what is in store for Tamarind Chutney now in terms of funding. Sure. So we are bootstrapped right now. A part of the reason that we're bootstrapped is because we want to be very intentional about systematizing our impact model before diluting our ownership. 
and um, like I said, you know, we're thinking of all these ancillary services um, for our artisans. We've talked about profit sharing for our artisans also, um, even though it's quite premature to talk about profits, honestly, like we have been cash flow positive for uh, a few months, but the volume of profits has been so small that it, it's really meaningless. But I think at some point we would want to think about redistribution, all these, um, you know, social value and ancillary services for our artisans. Hmm. And um, I think can, you know, regular VCs may not want that, it may not align with um, their, uh, their capital, ret their return timelines, even impact VCs, many impact VCs have short, um, you know, timelines for getting a return. Hmm. Uh, retail is a very slow business, five years is not going to be enough to um, grow a lot and have this kind of impact. Hmm. So in short, we see a trade off uh, between, you know, impact and super fast growth. And uh, we want to be on the impact side. I think since we're currently able to bootstrap, we are, despite Corona, we are seeing our revenues climb back to where they were uh, before the lockdown. We have some space to play with marketing right now to grow our customer base. That's what we want to do for the next six to eight months at least. Um, and I think once we have more, um, more customers, we have more clarity on how to systematize our, uh, our impact, we will consider raising. But there again, we would be looking at very patient capital, so not um, regular VCs. Um, yeah, and uh, I would kind of like to repeat the three points that are absolutely essential uh, for founders. Number one is to be very mindful in terms of where you're spending money. Number two is really determining who is the right investor depending on the objective that you have. And the third is really timing your funding and knowing when to raise. So absolutely agree with you on that. Um, now, Tanvi, just moving on to the government the role that the government has to play when it comes to social entrepreneurs and what has your experience really been? I know that Startup India has a bunch of accelerators, competitions, mentorship programs. We have had access to a couple. Um, I'm not sure how many of them result in funding. They have another platform for angel funding. So I would encourage all um, young you know startup founders by young i mean young in terms of uh, age of enterprise <laughs> i would encourage everyone to uh, to get onto the startup india platform just because there's resources that that you might find useful um other than that i think um because we are um in an industry where there's a lot of data being collected by the government um, on on stakeholders that we want to work with more than funding government um is is very valuable in in connecting us to these artisans and um while it's a, it is a long process uh, because it you know the data lies with different different states i think states are responsive um in terms of wanting to uplift their crafts, wanting to promote their crafts. So um, I think that has been more helpful. And of course, that's not relevant for all um, all sectors or all the listeners uh, of, this, of this podcast. But I think the broader point is that the government might be relevant for much more than just funding. It could be relevant for its reach. Uh, it could be valuable for any contacts and networks and, and, and you know, 
things that may not be available just uh, in the public domain. I couldn't agree more and uh, you know I keep telling so many people that the government is so so important in terms of really creating scalable and sustainable organizations and you know I realized this when I was at CSF and the amount of data that we had access to um, and the amount of data that we could make decisions with was incredible um, so I completely agree with you on that. Um, now, just moving on to the fun stuff. Um, tell me what's up with you in life. Life? I mean, Tamil and Chutney is my life right now. But um, other than that, I, I make sure to take out time for exercising. Um, so when I was in the US, I used to love going for bike rides. Right. Now I exercise indoors. Um, but whatever, I try to exercise five to six times uh, a week. I'm also now an old soul. I love my sleep. So I try not to compromise on that as well. Uh, and before everyone logs off because they think I'm so boring, let me try to say some fun things <laughs> as well. I really, um, so I really enjoy reading. Um, I love dancing. Been a little bit of a struggle in the lockdown, but uh, turn on a dance workout video and I'm just ready for uh, everyone. And and that sort of um, and then of course um, spending quality time with family now is is something that you know I am really appreciating um, in the lockdown. Wow, I'm so glad that you are able to work out every day. That's like my biggest challenge. Um, I was uh, trying to work out very regularly in Bangalore, but it's just so difficult to do it when you're back home. Um, so yeah, really great work at that. Uh, now I want to know what is this one piece of advice that you have for all the young girls out there who are trying to start up? My advice to young women out there is to go out there and do what you want to. Don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. Um, whenever you think you faced a setback or whenever you have faced a setback, just know that there are so many people in your life and in the world that are rooting for you. And um, don't be afraid to reach out to any other mentors, male or female, um, or anyone that you admire. Don't be afraid to write that cold email. There are more people in the world that believe in you than you think. In fact, uh, I got a job based on a LinkedIn note that I had sent out to uh, one of my mentors or my seniors. Um, so I totally believe in the power of cold emailing. Thank you so much, Tanvi. I had a lovely time chatting with you and uh, good luck with Tamar and Chutney. Thank you, Shreya. This was really fun. I really enjoyed talking to you. Mm -hmm.